0: This is not about politics.
1: This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country, pretty nearly in Europe, in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Ben Benjamin Day?
0: I'm Stephanie Nakajima.
1: And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care.
0: Woohoo. So first, an update on the Medicare for All bill. As of today, February 24th, almost two o'clock Eastern, we have about 75 original co-sponsors on the bill that's about to be reintroduced in the House as it is every session, which is really great. But of course, we need to get as many as possible to show show our strength on Medicare for All, which last session was over a majority of Democrats who co-sponsored. I think it was 106 original and then ultimately 118 by the end of the session. And so we're gonna actually have an action at the end of the podcast today. We're going to put up the capital switchboard on the screen. And so you can all call your legislators and ask them, you know, either thank them if they are original co-sponsor or ask them to become one if they are not. But today, in light of the upcoming bill, we have a presentation on where we are with this bill and who are the next 100 or so Democratic representatives who we need to get on to actually ask Medicare for all through the House and a deeper dive into what it's going to take to get that majority that we need in Congress. So, Ben, take it away.
1: Let's not call it a presentation. Let's, uh, <laughs> it sounds boring. Let's call it a, a discussion, a dialogue. So, right. but you know, one of the things we do obviously, that we did, especially as we were switching from the last legislative session to this current one, was to take a little bit of look at the districts and the co sponsors we already have on board the bill, the Medicare for All bills in the House and the Senate. And how are they really different from the districts where we need to get co-sponsors on board the bill. So we're specifically looking at districts represented by Democrats or you know swing districts that may off and on be represented by a Democrat whose votes we really need to push this past the finish line. And you know, this was kind of a, we were looking mostly at demographic type data, political data, that sort of stuff. But there's some revealing stuff in here that I think is really important for all organizers and activists of the Medicare for All movement to sort of ponder as they switch from the type of organizing we've been doing for the last insert number of years you've been plugging away at this year compared to the next final stretch that we really need to win this thing.
0: And for this presentation, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to put like a link to this presentation, the discussion images. So you can follow along because this is this is actually like a whole slideshow that that we put together. And there's actually another video on it on the YouTube channel, which you can also watch. But yeah, go ahead.
1: Right. I'm not going to torture you with the slideshow live, (laughs) even if you're watching the video version. I'm just going to do the really high level stuff and I'm going to try my absolute best not to just like cite numbers after numbers after numbers and just give you the big picture here. So I'll start big picture geography. The good news is most parts of the country, most regions of the country, we have a majority of Democrats in the House are co sponsors of the Medicare for All bill. A particular shout out to the Rocky Mountain region, who has 60% of their Democrats on board, which is the highest of any area so big shout outs to Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. People may not think of those states as like the most successful <laughs> in Medicare for All organizing, but turns out they are. And but also
0: remembering that if the best that we have is 60%, we actually need 100% to to get to the floor. So,
1: yeah, word. So Rocky Mountain you <laughs> actually have quite a lot of work cut out for you. But the the areas of the country where we have had the least success getting Democrats on board in the house and this is no knock on the folks doing work in those areas, we just don't have enough of us in those areas, is in particular the Plains region. So this is we're talking like Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, that area of the country, only about 27 percent, about a quarter of Democrats are on board the bill in those states. But those aren't huge population states. So that actually isn't a huge chunk of like the responses we need. But the area of the country that is really important that and jumps off the page when you're looking at the geography of our our movement is the south the whole southeastern part of the country where similarly we we have less than a third of democrats in that area on board and there are a lot of democrats in that part of the country so this is you know florida georgia alabama mississippi louisiana arkansas kentucky all the way up to you know dc maryland virginia and this is you know not just our movement but i think in a lot of large-scale social justice movements this is the part of the country where we have a lot of Democrats, but they are not as inclined to social justice issues, and we need stronger social movements. So that's the thing that jumps off the page with geography. When you look at politics, there's also some pretty striking differences between the districts where we have co-sponsors and the districts where we need to get co-sponsors on board. Of the, you know, 114, 118 Co-sponsors we had at the end of last year, only five of them represented swing districts. And I know we have this whole back and forth with the centrist Democrats about like, is Medicare for All a winning issue in these swing districts? And I think it actually is. But the truth is, very few of the districts we have organized so far are swing districts. And that could be part of this logic that, you know, D triple C is pushing that you cannot run a Medicare for All if you want to win in a swing district. So of the remaining, the next hundred and eighteen districts we need to get on board. Where we had Democrats last year who were not on board, about a third of them were swing districts, interpreting swing pretty broadly as could go Republican, could go Democrat. And that doesn't mean, you know, that the Democrats in those districts are any less progressive. Uh, It could just be that there's bigger independent bases, that Republicans are stronger in those districts. So that's another thing to bear in mind. We are going into a really different political terrain in the next districts that we need to organize. And similar, if you look at margin of victory, Democrats have these huge margins of victory in the districts we have organized compared to the other ones that we're going to have to organize. And then just out of curiosity, I kind of looked at the demographics of the legislators themselves who were on board the bill at the end of last session versus the Democrats who were not on board. I looked at gender and there's actually no gender difference between male and female reps, which kind of surprised me. I thought maybe women would be more likely to support Medicare for all than men, but when you look at race, different story. So, of the of, of our co-sponsors at the end of last year, more than half of them were people of color, were Latinx or Black or Asian uh, or Indigenous, and. That is way out of proportion with the, the the representation of people of color in Congress, let me tell you. And it really means that vastly disproportionately, the Medicare for All bill is being held up by leaders of color in the House of Representatives. And it's a really different picture when you look at the next 118 co-sponsors we need to get on board. Those Democrats who haven't signed on, about two-thirds of them are actually white and only a minority, a third of them are people of color. And I, I won't go all the way into this. This is one of those things, if you really like data, you can... You can look, pull up the slideshow and take a deep, deep dive, but I did race and gender, and it turned out that women of color in Congress were way, 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 hands and above everyone else, the most likely to be co-sponsors of the bill, and were really disproportionately holding up the bill, and white women in Congress were the least likely to be co-sponsors of the bill. And you know, I think we saw something like this just in this past election cycle, or I guess every election cycle, where women of color voters are kind of the most reliable Democratic voters and basically enabled the Democratic Party to win elections at all. So,
0: And this is how we repay them.
1: Yeah, thanks. <laughs> By <exactly>. trying
0: to <laughs> squash Medicare for all. I was reading some study the other day that was saying that a lot of times Republican women, women who are Republican or, or running for on the Republican primary, actually tech pretty far right. I think we're seeing that with Marjorie Greentaylor, whatever her name is, perfect example of that to win and sort of like differentiate themselves in their Republican primaries. And then sometimes it comes back to bite them when they get to the general and they've staked out all these really far-right positions, but that actually we're not seeing that on the Democratic side at all. We're not seeing Democratic women tag left to be competitive in the primary. And so I think that that's such an interesting, that white women are, are actually really sort of lagging behind on co-sponsorship and I know that there's definitely some misogynistic reason and co- some intersection of conservative ideals and, and and misogyny that's contributing to this that's a story for another podcast but
1: <laughs> yeah interesting also fucked up. I secretly in my mind, I envision like all these campaign consultants, the same ones who are like, you can't run on Medicare for all, even if you believe in it in a swing district Are like, sorry, this is how people perceive women in public. So you can't take strong uh, positions. Exactly. All these fucked up consultants who are ruining our our American Mm -hmm. democracy. And yeah, I think you're coming to us from Georgia right now, right? And Kelly Loeffler definitely tacked right, but I'm glad it didn't Mm -hmm. work for her. So (laughs) when you switch from looking at the demographics of the legislators themselves and look at their districts, which is far more important for our purposes, the picture actually looks very much the same. So of the districts where we have a Medicare for all co-sponsor, more than half of them are majority of color districts. And when you look at the next 118 districts where we have to get a Medicare for all co-sponsor on board, where we have democratic districts, fully three-fourths of them are majority white, only about a quarter are majority people of color. And I also looked at the income of these districts, the average income level. On average, the districts where we have a Medicare for all co-sponsor are lower income the Dixas where we do not. But again, if you break it out by majority white versus majority POC districts, it's actually a different picture. Majority POC districts are lower income than the current co-sponsor levels, which is the totally opposite trend. Whereas majority white districts are like way, way wealthier and much higher income, the ones that we need to organize. So there's something there. I'm not entirely sure what it is.
0: Rich people are bastards.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there's this huge income gap between communities of color and white communities in general in the country. So part of it is a reflection of that. Harvard also, I think maybe be that the, these majority community of color districts tend to be more solidly democratic. So a lot of them have also figures in leadership who are very hard to get on board, but they could have very high percentages of people of color and very low incomes. That could be sort of what's going on here. But I bring this all up not as a curiosity item, but just to highlight that although the general trend is that the districts where we need to get Coast Monsters on board are richer, and whiter and more, they're higher educated. They tend to be more politically contested with Republicans, tend to be more swing states. This is not actually the case for the remaining districts that are majority districts of color. There's actually a different kind of socioeconomic landscape in those districts. So the averages can hide some things. And in those, specifically those 31 districts where we need to win a co sponsor, but they are majority people of color districts. They're overwhelmingly in three states. They're overwhelmingly in Pennsylvania, in Texas, and in Florida. Ten of them are in California, four in Florida, five in Texas. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely an extra level of disenfranchisement happening there mm-hmm. and an extra, I think, gap between like representation and constituents probably plays a role as well.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, we all just watched what happened in South Carolina during the elections. So (laughs) no no shocker there. And I I very quickly looked at the Senate and I'll wrap this whole thing up. So we're not stuck in a presentation. We can get to the dialogue. The Senate, you can't really look at the demographics of states because states are so big and they hide so much. If you just look at the averages. But I did look at the, the race and ethnicity of the co-sponsors in the Senate is pretty striking. At the end of last year, 80% of the Medicare for All co-sponsors, the 15 co-sponsors we had, aside from Bernie Sanders, were white only 20% were people of color. A big chunk of that 20%, of course, was Kamala Harris, who's no longer going to be in the Senate anymore. And of the remaining Democratic senators who we need to get on board, over 90% of them are whites, less than 10% are people of color. And that is just because, breaking news, the Senate is a totally racist institution. It's not a Democratic institution. It doesn't reflect the population at all. And we have this The United States is kind of, I don't quite know how it ended up this way, but we have a lot of small states with lower population that tend to be disproportionately white who still get equal representation in the Senate. So that's aside from racism in the election system. There's just this built in kind of structural racism in how states are represented in the Senate. And when I saw this, I was struck by the reason we're doing worse in the Senate than we are in the House is that we don't have the leaders of color kind of championing the bill in the Senate. We don't have as many uh, to champion the bill in the Senate. So it's a really different, uh, we have much, much further to go in the Senate. And I think, again, whereas one message in the House is we're going to have to tackle different types of districts in the House, in the Senate, we're going to have to tackle some of these states that are really economically, politically, demographically different from the districts and states where we've been having success so far. So I'll wrap up. The fake verbal slideshow right there.
0: <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of people who will ask us like, oh, I'm in AOC's district. What can I do? And it's like, well, that means you're also in Chuck Schumer's district, <laughs> who right. does not, yeah. is not a uh, mm-hmm. supporter of Bernie Sanders' Senate bill for Medicare for All. And so no matter where you are, Elon Omar's district, there's, I think, two senator, both senators there that that are not uh, on the bill. There's just the state work is also we haven't we've almost feel like as a movement, we haven't even gotten there yet, because we're still, you know, working on building up in the districts. But the state work is also essential for us to, to actually win Medicare for all.
1: The truth is just to tack on really quickly, because mm. we've had a Democratic majority in the House in the past period of time and not in the Senate, our whole movement has really been focused on the House more, I think because we mm-hmm. you can you can win incremental things like getting hearings on your bills when the democrats are the chairs. The Senate we've been neglecting but that has to end starting this session. Mm-hmm. That's going to be another big shift yep. that we're going to have to make this year.
0: Exciting. So Ben, this was a lot of information. <laughs> I'm wondering Apologies. if we can <laughs> So super wonky, um, but super interesting. I wonder if we can just sort of zone in on like one or two states just to give sort of a case study and give sort of an example of what we're talking about here.
1: Sure. You know, there's a few states that are really strongly exemplify how the districts with co-sponsors are really different from the districts where we need to win co-sponsors. And I picked one of them, which is just New York, uh, New York State, that is, (laughs) not New York City. And very briefly, if you look at New York, last year, New York had 14 co-sponsors on the bill in the House. But when you look at who those 14 co-sponsors are and which districts they represent, nine of those districts were majority people of color districts, and almost all of them were in New York City, all except for three of them. And two of the rest represented like Buffalo and Albany, so they're still pretty urban areas. And then also at the end of last session, New York State had seven Democrats who were not co-sponsors of the Medicare for All bill. So this is, represents the, like, the rest of the road that we now have to travel to win. And of those seven districts, all of them were majority white and only two were kind of heavily urban. One was on Staten Island. The other was Rochester. The rest of those districts were heavily suburban, heavily rural. They were much more politically contested with the GOP. Three of them were swing districts and actually two of them flipped Republican just in this last election cycle. So that I hope paints a little bit more of a detailed picture of like, why things are going to have to look different with our organizing going forward. You can't just repeat the types of organizing and the places we've been done doing organizing that we've been doing for the last X number of years.
0: Ooh, so, Staten Stephanie, Island, I wonder. Rochester. Yeah, no uh, shit. Any of those? I, I don't want to organize
1: there. Rochester, I think we should be able to win Rochester. Yeah. Anyway, t- side tangent.
0: <laughs> Oof, okay. That was sobering. <laughs> Well, I think we should. So it was just so much information. I mean, what are our takeaways from mm-hmm. this presentation? I guess for me, I think that this might be also very obvious. Uh, thank you to people of color and women of color in particular for holding up our bill. Can I give a shout out especially to Ayanna Presley, who, you know, in Massachusetts, we have nine co sponsors and only. Two of them so far have actually uh, committed to be original co-sponsors on this next iteration of the bill, and that is Jim McGovern and Ayanna Presley. And that's just so important for us because it helps us, you know, we have very precious, constrained organizing resources, and so when legislators just jump on board without being asked a million times and that just helps us to redirect to where we really need it to be. And so, if only all of our <laughs> original co-sponsors from last year or last session did that, that would be great. But, you know, what does this mean if if you know, people of color are holding up our bill, then I think it's really time for white people to start talking about organizing white people. Of course, we are not going to have to organize every single white person <laughs> onto the Medicare for All bill. That's never going to happen, but I think that when we look at the remaining districts, there's probably a lot, like for example, in my district here in Georgia 6, it is heavily white, I guess you could say probably like 65%. So majority white, but there's also an area that's gerrymandered. So like just from like uh, north of Atlanta, that's sort of like diluting the black and brown vote there. And so I think that what's probably going to happen is that there's going to be coalitions of black and brown people who care about Medicare for all and have been supporting it. And then also they're going to have to make a coalition with white people who are supportive of Medicare for all. And so I think, you know, that's just something that we, we talk a lot about like, oh, bringing in people of color into our movement. Well, actually they've already been doing work and we need to, we need to focus on who we can peel off among ourselves as white people.
1: Yeah. You know, one takeaway that I think you could accidentally take away from this this data is that it's actually time to be organizing like rich white people in rich white communities. I I don't think that is the takeaway or that we should be talking less about racial justice or it's or that racial that integrating racial justice with the Medicare for All movement is somehow less important than we thought it was and I I don't think that's true. I think, you know, in part even in these predominantly white districts that we were talking about Racism does get weaponized in those districts to oppose universal programs like Medicare for All and many, many others, you know, kind of stoking racial resentment using dog whistles, you know, you know, is this going to cover illegal immigrants, all that type of stuff. If you don't have a message to address that, you literally can't organize, I think, white communities. So I think the racial justice message is is equally, if not more important uh, in the, the, the road we have to continue to cover. But it is not the case that the burden of getting this bill past the finish line now primarily rests on communities of color. So I think that's the wrong yeah. message to take away, right?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's exactly the the reason we don't have Medicare for all is because of racism. So it's impossible to, I think, to think that we're going to pass Medicare for all without addressing that legacy. I mean, when we, when I think about, you know, Scandinavia, Denmark and Sweden and other Scandinavian countries, they built their much admired welfare states successfully because, you know, the ruling class was less able Practically unable to use race as a point of division among the working class. And so, you know, now that those countries are increasingly multicultural and multiracial, the underpinnings of the welfare state are being questioned, and you're starting to see the weakness in forming a non multicultural coalition. And because these, you know, really white countries never had to apprehend their racism or xenophobia uh, to get. The great things that they have, their Medicare, for their single payer system, their universal college and pre-K and all that stuff. And so I I think that we are part of a project that has never really been done before, I think.
1: Well, many of them were colonial, large colonial countries, so they got to export their racism, (laughs) Um, (laughs) not to the extent that the United States did. Yeah, I, I'm curious what you think about. I mean, I guess the other aspect of this, aside from the racial justice takeaway, is the intersect. The question of how does the left interact with the Medicare for All movement? Did you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> well, I think the first thing is that most of these reps that we what we already have. On and, areas that are already represented by district, by districts that are co-sponsors, you know, they have a progressive movement infrastructure in Boston and New York City, you know, where there are already established groups doing work on, you know, not only, but including Medicare for all, but all of the areas that the left, that the left is working on. And, you know, I think that the areas that remain to be organized are just sort of less organized in general. And I'm not a hundred percent sure that like, You know, the force the vote sort of philosophy was like to build a Tea Party movement of the left. And I'm not sure that like digging further, deeper into the leftist infrastructure is really going to help us with these remaining districts. What do you think,
1: Ben? Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, this is an interesting question. The the strategy of of. Building a Tea Party of the left to kind of drag the Democratic Party to the left, and I can see the logic there. That if you could do something, I mean, there's no question the Republican Party has been dragged to the right, all parts of the Republican Party to the point where the, the the sort of middle of the road Republican almost doesn't exist anymore in the House, especially, but even in the Senate, increasingly so. But you know. I think the other model that I look to more so, and I think that that is a project that someone should take on. I don't think that's Healthcare Now's project. And that's because I think we look more to the social movements that have made major sort of structural changes in our country. If you're looking at like the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, equal marriage movement, all these movements obviously had, they had left and center and right of all those movements, right? So there there was an organized left that was part of all those movements. And I think it's an important part of all those movements. But they were also movements that were able to build really broad coalition that was not just, you know, rejuvenating the left. And they were able to appeal to kind of basic human values to say, you know, women being kept not allowed to vote, basic, violate some of our basic human tenets that we increasingly all believe in. Same thing with the civil rights movement. Same thing with uh, equal marriage, that it started to resonate with kind of a broader public that doesn't identify with the political left. So I do, I, kind of from our perspective, I feel like, and especially when I look at the, this data about the districts we now have to organize next, I mean, I think if you're looking at like one of these districts that we've already organized, you could probably organize the left in Boston and get, a, get your member of Congress to support something. But increasingly, all those districts we're looking at now You can't just organize the left in those districts and get a member of Congress to co-sponsor the bill. Even in these big urban areas, I think. When it comes down to a vote on a Medicare for All bill, when money is raining from the sky, the healthcare industry is like fully mobilized in opposition, it's also not going to be enough in any district to just have kind of even a strong left. So I think we're going to need a strong left, but we're also going to need this much broad there has to be a space in this movement for a lot of people who are not sort of strongly ideologically aligned. So
0: Yeah. And that brings us to, I feel like another challenge that's sort of borne out through this analysis, right? As we move from a progressive left movement, the progressive left has taken us to where we are in this movement, to a place Mm. where we can really start to think about some of the end game stuff. And as, so as we move from that to like trying to build a broad based, truly like majority movement, I foresee challenges <laughs> with mm-hmm. the coalitions. I think, you know, we're going to have to organize people, as you say, who don't politically align with the full slate of progressive positions. And, you know, we'll have to enter into coalition with people who aren't always leftists. And we're going to have to also find ways to talk to people about positions that are going to be necessary for us to win. So, for example, abortion is in the bill and abortion is very unapologetically in the bill. Not only does it guarantee abortion to everybody, but it also guarantees that that's going to be taxpayer. Funded and undocumented immigrants are included in this bill. And, you know, it's a total, totally redistributive policy of enacting a progressive tax so that people pay according to their ability. And then then that's gonna like really shake up, you know, who's paying what for this. And so I think that we have a lot of soul searching to do as well about like what the Medicare for All movement is gonna look like and how we're gonna get there, really.
1: Yeah. And I th- I think we've We've had some of this change happen already, a little bit, but there's going to have to be a lot more. I mean, I think especially in 2017, 2018, we saw quite a few organizations who had been exclusively focused on like defend the ACA work, start to shift into Medicare for all organizing work Mm -hmm. as the ground really shifted on Medicare for all. And there was like kind of a national surge of support, even the term Medicare... Yeah. Indivisible among many others, right? Some of our, Mm -hmm, actually mm -hmm. some of our best new allied organizations. And I think we're going to continue to see that. We're going to see groups who are kind of Biden and Clinton aligned organizations. I mean, we'll start shifting more and more into the Medicare for all camp, but it's going to make for some awkward bedfellows. And I think you just have to be able to work in coalition. And, you know, again, it's not like, I'm not saying every organization has to be able to represent everyone or bring everyone into the movement, but we are going to have to have more and more niches within the movement.
0: That could be its whole own podcast, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah.
1: I even see it a little bit. It's kind of interesting. In recent years, there's been kind of a growth of business owner involvement in the Medicare for All movement. And since our movement has been so strongly historically labor led, it's led to some interesting moments, even at like our conferences <laughs> where, you know, we've had some of our keynote speakers get up to the mic and say, you know, capitalists are never, ever going to back this. We just have to smash them and defeat them like we do at the bargaining table. (laughs) And then a CEO comes up and says, I just launched the business for Medicare for all. (laughs) uh, I'm
0: fine with business uh, leaders being in our movement, just so long as they know that we're here to smash
1: capitalism. Right. (laughs) Little side note on the end there. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's going to, it's going to turn into an ugly but beautiful movement, as I sometimes say. So do we, I don't know, should we look into our own backyard and talk a little bit about Massachusetts as we close out here?
0: (laughs) I know all of our listeners in all 50 states love to hear about the tiny state of Massachusetts and what's going on here. So I
1: I think we're contractually obligated to plug Massachusetts in every (laughs) single podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Like when I did this analysis of the country and then I was like, oh, let me look at Massachusetts. I was actually kind of surprised, you know, at the end of last session, we had three Democrats who were not on board the bill. We had Seth Moulton, who represents the North Shore. We had Stephen Lynch, who represents the South Shore. This is like just above and below Boston, along the coast. And then we had uh, Richard Neal, who represents Western Mass, and obviously is a very powerful Democrat in the House, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. And I was kind of surprised to see that those North Shore and South Shore districts were actually very white and very wealthy. <laughs> it yeah. It ran against historically how I think of those areas because they have these old industrial cities in them and these old kind of fishing towns along the, the coast that have kind of all of their industry has disappeared and not all of it, but a lot of it has. So there's been kind of a rise of unemployment in those cities and also they've become new hubs for, for new immigrant communities, mm-hmm. but I'd kind of forgotten that they're also surrounded and gerrymandered into these giant yeah. wealthy suburban populations around Boston and that Obviously, these old fishing towns have also been significantly gentrified by people who like to live on the ocean and can afford to do so. <laughs> and those districts are really, you know, I think they fell into exactly what you had said earlier. Mm-hmm. Like, those are the parts of Massachusetts that don't have really dense social justice infrastructure. They don't have a ton of grassroots organizations that have foundation funding to do organizing work. They don't have a ton of unionized workplaces so that the unions are really active, you know, they don't have huge industry, you know, it's, it's a different
0: unions are building trades unions that are traditionally more conservative.
1: Exactly. Good point. I mean, what we don't have is those are solidly democratic districts. So we're not dealing with swing, swing districts in this, in this case. And even Richie Neal's district is the most rural of all the districts in the state. So that is also, I mean, we're not a very rural state in Massachusetts. Western Mass is really the only kind of heavily rural district that we have in this state, you know, we are also trying to figure out now how we have to sort of shift gears to a different type of organizing. We can't just gather together the usual suspects and like, all right, let's build a coalition of all the grassroots groups and unions in this district and then throw ourselves against these reps. We're going to have to do, I think, more intensive grassroots outreach and maybe have some slightly different messaging too and do some better listening, I think. so.
0: All of the above. I'm not sure if I really have anything to add to that. I think that it just, you know, this is one of the things that I said about in my article about force the vote is that people are rightfully frustrated about where we are as a movement. They saw that we made this big leap in 2016 or so. And then after that, it was sort of a trickle of new co-sponsors and it wasn't the same energy. It was not the same proportion. And I think that that's, this is the reason why, right? Cuz we've hit a lot of the low-hanging fruit and now we got to start actually building new infrastructure, going into new places we haven't organized before. There are no shortcuts unfortunately to that work and, you know, even if AOC and the squad can force a vote, we have to change those things. We have to change that political reality to actually make Medicare for all a reality, which is my, always my sort of North star. How do we get there? Right.
1: Yep. Um, I agree. I mean, all the three of those reps happily speak out against Medicare for all. Yeah. Um, So they'd be happy to vote against it also. And it wouldn't change at at all our chances of winning in these districts. And there's no one month, two month campaign that's going to help us get these three reps on. And I think it's the same Mm -hmm. around the country. It's going to be a really long-term base building campaign. That's going to get us there. So in the spirit of organizing, should we do one last pitch for like folks calling their legislators since we are really trying to do this big co-sponsor push?
0: Yes. And one of the things I was actually going to say today but didn't was that, you know, low level actions like calling your legislator aren't going to cut it for these districts. And that is true, but it still means you should definitely call your legislator today as a start to kicking off our organizing in 2021. I think even if your legislator, you call them and you ask them to co-sponsor the bill and they say, actually, our legislator Ayanna Presley is already an original co-sponsor, then please thank her for being a champion on Medicare for All. We want to encourage all of our legislative leader, our legislative champions, and we want to pressure ones who aren't quite on yet. So let me get up the... Phone number, that is the Capital Switchboard. Give them a call and speak your mind. Remember to tell your story.
1: Right. And if you're listening to the audio (laughs) podcast, the Capital Switchboard number is 202-224-3121 is the Capital Switchboard. And yeah, I think after you call them, (laughs) find a bunch of your friends in the district to ask for a meeting with them if they are not already signed on. Because that's like the next step. You have to escalate a little bit more but we are okay. going to get close we'll to bill drop yeah. and then it's going to be, then shit's going to get real. So. <laughs>
0: exactly. And we should definitely have more organizing podcasts to talk about.
1: Good all organizing food. podcasts. All. Or- <laughs> exactly. All right. I'll talk to y'all next time. Yes. Thanks for joining
0: us. Bye.